Well, hello. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. And uh, I can, um, I am glad to be able to say uh, that this is going to be our last uh, virtual worship service. That in a week, on June the 7th, we will begin to regather together in our church building. And there are going to be different things uh, related to that, um, different uh, things that we, we're going to need to make you aware of and, and ways in which we're going to have to do our services. I said services, plural, there will be multiple so that we can still abide by some uh, distancing. But those details will be coming, so I encourage you to be looking on the Realm and checking your email. And if you're not on the Realm, please get on the Realm, our internal communication tool. It's the best way for you to know what's going on. Um, that's the best way for you to know uh, what, what you can be expecting uh, come June 7th. But I am excited that we will be together soon. So though this is our last virtual service, this is actually our first sermon in our summer series in the Psalms. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Psalm chapter 9. In a moment, the passage will be projected on the screen in front of you. And this has become our practice to return to the Psalms each summer. For the last three or four summers, we've been doing it. And my desire, Lord willing, is that we would continue to do this each and every summer as we work our way through all 150 Psalms. And so maybe you're wondering why we do this. If you've been part of our church for the last couple of years, maybe you're wondering, why do we return to the Psalms? Or maybe... Maybe you're new to our church and you're wondering, why are we stopping midway through this book of 1 Samuel? And why are we turning to this other book, this other Old Testament book? Well, um, some of you might think that we do this just simply because I love the Psalms, and I do love the Psalms. They're by far and away my favorite book in all of Scripture. I love returning to them again and again, but that's not why we, we come to them each summer. No, we return to the Psalms each summer because in the Psalms we encounter human emotion, true human emotion. We encounter every human emotion. We encounter in the Psalms normal life experiences, and the Psalms give us a picture of what it means to be human, of what it means to live in this world. I mean, if you're struggling with temptation and sin, the Psalms deal with that. If you're in awe of God's creation, well, the Psalms were in awe of his creation long before we ever were. If you're experiencing the joys of life or the sorrows of death, the Psalms speak of those as well. You see, the Psalms teach us what it means to be human. They give expression to the things that we feel. I mean, so often, so often we experience great heights of joy and, and depths of sorrow so, so deep and so high that it seems as though we can't find words to express what we're feeling. And yet the Psalms give us those words. That in those times of great joy or in those times of great depth, we can turn to the Psalms and find God's word to lead us to give us words to put on our lips, to pray and to sing back to our Lord. This is why we come to the Psalms each and every summer. This is why we return to them. And so to start this summer, we're going to start with Psalm 9. It's a Psalm of David. It's a Psalm of Thanksgiving. And just follow along now. 
to the choir master, according to the Muth Laben, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Haggaiah, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the God and the King and the ruler of this universe. And that means you are the God and the King and the ruler of our hearts, of our lives, and of this moment. And so we pray that in this moment you would allow my words to honor you. And you would allow the meditations of our hearts to please you. So that in everything that we think and say and do in these next few moments, you would be honored and glorified. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, the psalm begins in the first couple verses with a common refrain. Give thanks. Sing praise. These are words that we expect if you've been around the church for any time. You expect that when you come to church, when you open your Bibles, that you're going to hear these words. Give thanks. Sing praise. Right? I mean, we hear it in our liturgy when we come to church. We hear it in our call to worship. It's in the words that we sing, in the songs that we employ. It's throughout the Psalms. Give thanks. Sing praise. We expect to hear these words. And yet, even as we expect it, even as it is common for us to say them when we gather together, I wonder if the constant call to give thanks, to sing praise, I wonder if at times it's difficult to do these things. 
I wonder if at times we hear this refrain, sing praise, give thanks, and we wonder there's not much to be thankful for. We look at the world around us, and we see and experience things like job loss and illness, anger and the abuse of power and confusion. And it's easy to think, I mean, what, what do I have to give praise about? Lament, frustration, disappointment, those sound like the emotions we're experiencing, right? And we don't even have to think or look to places like what like Minneapolis or, or Georgia or New York City and the events that have occurred in the last few weeks and months in those places. We don't have to look to those places to know the frustration and the difficulty and the lament that we feel. We can look in our own place, in our own hearts. I mean, even now, right now. Next week we will be together, but, but right now we're still not. I'm still preaching to in the empty sanctuary and staring at an iPad and you are watching through your TV and surrounded probably only by family. Maybe not even that. And so we know this, right? We know this frustration. We know this inconvenience. We know this disappointment. So why are we called to give thanks? It's easy to give thanks when life is easy. It's easy to sing praise when we're so full of joy that our voices can't be contained. Right? I mean, we think of David. Of course, David says, give thanks, sing praise. He's the king. He's got power and wealth. He's adored. You remember in 1 Samuel, we heard that all of Israel loved David. He's a friend that's closer than a brother. Of course, David can give thanks. But that's only part of David's story. I mean, David is the author of this psalm. And David didn't experience just ease or joy or goodness. In this psalm, he speaks of enemies. We see them in verses 3 and 6. He recounts the, the acts of the wicked in verses 16 and 17. And he, he invokes nations that need rebuke in verses 5 and 15. And we don't know who these enemies were, and we're not sure what the wicked were doing but what we do know is that even as these enemies are surrounding David, and even as the wicked are seeking his ill, that even then David gave thanks. And why? Why does he give thanks? Because David looks beyond his own situation, and he looks to the Lord. And when he looks to the Lord, what he finds is God's reign. See, that's why David gives thanks. Because of God's reign. Look at how he contrasts the Lord with his enemies. In verses 6 and 7, he says, The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. So do you hear the contrast? The, the enemies find everlasting ruin. They will perish. But the Lord the Lord sits on his throne forever. He reigns. It's interesting, isn't it, how David invokes this kingly and royal language when he speaks about the Lord? It's interesting because David is the king of Israel. He is the Lord's anointed. He is the one who is reigning and ruling over Israel. But he understands 
that even though he is the king, and even though he reigns and he rules, that his reign and his rule are given to him. That his rule is given by God, and his reign will one day come to an end, and his kingdom is on loan. You see, with his death, David's kingdom will end. But the Lord's kingship, the Lord's rule, the Lord's reign, that is forever. Enemies and the wicked and nations will all come and go. But the Lord, his reign is forever. So that's why David gives thanks, because of God's reign. But, but God's reign is demonstrated in his justice. You see, God doesn't simply sit on his throne and he doesn't just call us to give thanks because he is God and and that would be reason enough because he is the creator and the ruler and the one who reigns over heaven and earth that would be enough for us to give thanks but but he uses his reign he uses his power to give justice we see it in verses seven and eight the lord sits enthroned forever He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. In verse 10, David says, For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. In verse 12, he proclaims, He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And in verse 18, he says, For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. So do you hear the confidence that David has? He, he has confidence because he, he knows, he is confident that God will use his power and his authority for the sake of those whom he loves. That he's going to defend his people. He's going to care for the needy. He's going to advance good and not forsake his people. His throne is for justice. He sees the needy and he hears the cry of the afflicted. Now it's here where maybe some of us might want to say, well, that sounds all well and good and that sounds nice, but, but where is this protecting God now? Where is this one who sees because what we seem to see a lot of right now is injustice? And that's a fair question. That's a fair question because when we do look around our world, we do see injustice. We do see the abuse of power. We do see the weak and the marginalized and the ignored being treated poorly and forgotten. But I want you to notice something about what David says. So just hold on with that question for a moment. In verses 5 through 8, when David describes what God does, his judging, the establishing of judgment, of justice, etc. What if you look at those verses, those verbs that David used, you'll note, notice that they're in the past tense, as though they have already happened. But the context of what he is declaring, it, it's clear that this justice that David is expecting of God is going to happen into the future. So why are these verbs in the past tense? Well, what's going on here is a rhetorical device that appears throughout the Old Testament. It's called a prophetic perfect. A prophetic perfect. It's shown throughout the book of Psalms, and it's used by many of the prophets, particularly Isaiah, when speaking of the Messiah to come. 
And what's occurring when the author uses this prophetic perfect is that they are looking to the future, to this event that's going to come, to something that they're waiting for, but they're so sure that it will come about. And they have such confidence that it will absolutely happen that they speak of it as though it already has. That's why those verbs are in the past. Because David is completely confident and completely sure that God's justice will reign, that his goodness will be established forever. He's looking to the future and he is sure and confident that it will come to pass. That God will judge with righteousness and he will defend the needy. And friends, God has established justice. His reign is forever. He does hear the oppressed and care for the needy. And where we need to look to see this is in Jesus himself. Because in Jesus, what we see is Jesus seeing the widow, the needy. We see Jesus befriending the marginalized, those who were ignored by culture. He said, come, follow me to them. In Jesus, we see him seeking justice, and he did so by taking justice on himself. You see, the day has come when God's justice against sin and evil and wickedness, it has come because it has been placed, that justice, on Jesus. He has taken that justice upon himself. And there is a day coming when Jesus will return and his justice will be forevermore. Where is God's justice? It's seen in the cross. And that is why we give him thanks for his justice and his reign. Okay, but how do we give him thanks? That's the next thing we need to take up. How are we to give God thanks? We've dealt with why we are to give him thanks, but how do we give him thanks? And that might sound like a silly question because it's like, well, well, duh, we give thanks by saying thanks. <laughs> and that's absolutely true. Uh, we do verbalize our thanks, but, but that's only part of giving thanks. There's actually so much more. Look at what David says in verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. You see, David understands there's an intellectual component to his thanksgiving. He knows with his mind the reasons he should give thanks to the Lord, but he also knows with his whole heart. His entire self is engaged. You see, we give thanks with our whole being. We see throughout the Psalms this call to full-bodied expressions of thanks and praise. But we don't even have to look at the Psalms. We hear it in other places of Scripture, like in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when we read that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might, that we are to love the Lord our God with even our strength, with everything that we are. You see, biblical thanks isn't like that little hand wave we give to the driver who lets us squeeze into the lane in front of him. You know, we, we give that little thanks. We just throw it up so they can see it in their, through their window. And, and then we never think about it again, right? We, we never think about what a wonderful person that was and how generous and how benevolent, right? We don't think about it. We give the little hand wave and we make our turn and we go about our day. But that's not biblical thanks. 
Biblical thanks isn't just one and done. It is full-bodied. It is all of our mind and our soul. It is our lips and our emotions. Because, y'all, when we truly grasp all that God has done for us, thanksgiving will well up in our being and overflow from our heart into words of joy and praise. That's what David says in verse 2. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. David can't help but sing. He has to declare what God has done. And that's the other way that we give thanks. We give thanks by recounting what the Lord has done. Look at the end of verse 1. David says, I will recount all your wonderful deeds. And then verses 13 through 14, David calls out to God, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Do you hear what's motivating David? David doesn't say, God, relieve me of my enemy, so I'm no longer weighed down. David doesn't say, deliver me, so I'm no longer anxious. Those certainly would have been realities. As he's delivered, as he's rescued, right? His, his worry, his concerns, they would have been lifted. The burden would have been taken off his shoulders. But, but David focuses on something much more. David says, you heard it. Be gracious to me. See my affliction. Lift me up. Why? So that I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. Do you hear what he's saying? Rescue me, God. Rescue me so I can recount to everyone what you have done. Let me be delivered so I can celebrate you and make much of you. You see, when we are truly thankful for something, for something that has been given to us, for something that, that someone has done on our behalf, we, we don't just talk about the thing that has been, been given, but we actually talk about the person who gave it to us. I experience this all the time. When people come into my office, it's, it's been a few months since anyone's been in my office, but when they do, especially for the first time, right, people look around and they take in the room and and invariably, someone will make a comment about maybe one of the paintings on my wall or, or about the, the pictures on my bookshelves or the little bobblehead statues that are in front of my books or that wonderful jersey of a famous ball player on the wall. People will comment on it about how pretty it is or, or what's the story behind it. And, and, and I don't simply say, yes, yeah, they're nice, they're fine. Or just decoration. Right? That would be a disservice to the item and to the people who gave it to me. No, I, I, I say, yes, that was a gift from so-and-so on my birthday. Or yes, that, that was given to me to commemorate this particular event so that I would remember what happened and, and this is who gave it to me. Right? I tell who it was that gave this beautiful item. And in recounting who it was, and why it was given, even though they are not there in my presence, I am giving thanks again. And y'all, how much more do we need to do that when we think of the Lord? When we've experienced his grace, when we are sure of his love, when we are confident in his care, 
when we are truly thankful, we can't help but recount what he's done. To declare that, that he's the one who created the world by his very word. To, to declare that, that he is the one that, that called David out of obscurity and made him the king. To proclaim to all who would hear that he is the one who has sent his son so that our sins would be forgiven and has graciously, by the blood of his son, showered on us love and care and mercy. You see, our thanksgiving shows itself by declaring and recounting and celebrating what God has done, and we should celebrate him. We should celebrate him for his reign and his justice. We should celebrate him with our whole being and recounting his wonderful deeds. Y'all, we celebrate him by giving thanks. Amen. Let's do that now. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all that you have done. We thank you that you are the one who has created the heavens and the earth and all that they contain. We are thankful that you are the one who revealed yourself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to David, and to the prophets. And we are most of all thankful that you are the one who sent your Son, our Lord Jesus, who gave of his life, who took your justice upon himself, and did so so that we would have grace and mercy and care. And so, Father, we say thank you, and we proclaim that you are the one worthy of all of our thanks. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.